Hi there, this is Connor Gilbertson, Public Relations Coordinator with the Region 5 Prevention Resource Center and Alcohol and Drug Abuse Council of DP's Texas. I wanted to let you know, before we get started, that this is a podcast about substance use. Sometimes we are going to talk about stories or details that may be tough and uncomfortable to hear. Our overall goal is to help people be healthier and happier. With that being said, do what you need to take care of yourself. Feel free to pause and step away if you need to. This episode will be right here when you get back. The most important thing is that you take care of yourself. Thanks. Now let's grow. Today we are here with Kim Bartell, the data coordinator for the Region 5 Prevention Resource Center and the Alcohol and Drug Abuse Council of DP's Texas. How are you doing today? Great. Glad to be here. Good. Glad to hear. So I guess kind of first things first, data coordinator. I'm assuming you collect data. So what kind of data do you collect? I collect data from throughout our region, 15 counties. Kind of to begin with, we collect demographic data to kind of give a picture of what our region really looks like. And of course, substance use patterns, we try to collect that data as well. Uh, We also look at behaviors that we can track and translate into statistical data, Uh, behaviors that kind of help influence or play a part in people's substance use. And so we try to get a big picture of all kinds of areas that kick in and play a part in substance use. Talking about that big picture, I know once a year, data coordinators put out a special report called the RNA, also known as the Regional Needs Assessment. That's where you compile all of this glorious data that you collect over the year into a report that shows the data you do collect for 15 counties that we serve here in Deep East Texas. Yes, there are 11 regions across the state. And so there are 11 data coordinators and we all collect the same data. We coordinate together to make sure that our data is similar, not the data is similar, but our uh, indicators are similar. And we will compile this throughout, well, throughout the year. We begin to write the RNA in late spring and throughout the summer and have that prepared to turn into the state. Uh, We report that RNA to them. And then we take this RNA and we distribute it throughout our region so that key stakeholders, providers throughout the region can have this information as well. Also, we provide it for the the state of Texas, HHSC, the state legislatures. We want them to be aware of substance use patterns as well as demographics that are taking place in each region. Bouncing off of that with the RNA that comes out every year, how does that data benefit the regions that we serve? For our region or for really any region, uh, we get several benefits from it in that, first of all, it's it's data to provide evidence-based information on programs that are taking place. We can see patterns that may be emerging trends in that way. Also, for stakeholders, it's data that's available if they're needing to write for a grant. So we provide this information for them uh, so that they can submit for grants and help provide more services throughout the region. So ultimately, it's to help increase our service providers throughout all the regions throughout the state of Texas. And with that data, I understand that they just started going towards a every other year route with the qualitative and quantitative data, whereas you're crunching numbers one year and then you're going around the 15 counties that we serve collecting interview data and breaking down basically on hand account of things that people in that county are seeing, acknowledging and observing. So just what's the what's the difference in the translation of qualitative and quantitative data? Of course, the quantitative data is the statistical numbers, things that can be backed up with actual hard numbers. Qualitative is, it's not elusive, but it's more 
of we interview people to get what they're experiencing in real life. And so the reason we do kind of an alternate year on that is because the uh, statistical data does not really change significantly from year to year. For instance, the Texas School Survey comes out every other year. U.S. Census data comes out every 10 years. And so there's not a lot of significant statistical data. But when we add that qualitative data to it, then we can kind of see, is this matching the numbers that we're seeing statistically? If not, what is it that you're experiencing out in the field? And plus, there's other indicators that we can gather through interviews that really can't be put in any type of quantitative measures. With that distance and time between whenever those two main key reports are put out, uh, as far as the census and the state survey, it, re- it really leads to where whenever you're seeing the qualitative data come in and you're able to talk to these people, it really allows for a check-in on a regular basis, which allows to see if there's a huge increase. Because, I mean, things are going to change, and that's just the way of life. Change is constant. But at the same time, it's if it's a very notable change, then things need to be done sooner rather than later. Because, you know, like you said, those reports only come out so often. So if we just collected the data on the number side of things, then we wouldn't really know the spike until the next time something came out. Exactly. And qualitatively, it's those conversations that we have with not just stakeholders, but parents, students, individuals, what they're seeing, what they're experiencing, how they're kind of interacting inside the region. And we can take that and we can line it up and see what the the statistical data is telling us compared to what they're telling us. In addition to that, we know that a lot of statistical data comes, it's a few years behind. And sometimes like the U.S. Census, they give projections of what's taking place. And we can look at the qualitative data and kind of measure, is this really a reflection of that? If so, if not, what adjustments are people making on the ground, so to speak, to interact with the certain indicators that we have in our field? And kind of going back a little bit to that Texas school survey you mentioned, what exactly is that? What kind of data are we collecting from that survey? The Texas school survey is Texas A&M provides a sampling survey from schools, random schools selected throughout the state of Texas. And uh, each region is given a report from a minimum number of schools selected in their region. In the high schools, well, actually 7th through 12th grade, this survey is done every other year. College surveys are done in between those two years. So we can get a report each year, uh, one's from high school, one's from college. And we use this to track... Uh, substance use among students because we know that these substances, their trends is taking place in the schools, that it can translate into what we might see more of in the future. But also we can detect patterns that take place for we know that, for example, alcohol use extremely high among college students. But we do see that once a lot of these students get out of college, their uh, alcohol behavior changes dramatically. And so we watch for patterns like this and try to track and see what's happening in those areas. And that's really kind of a gist of what your your whole data collection process is around is patterns, seeing what's trendy where, both in the nation as well as in our little corner of Deep East Texas, as well as just seeing where the hotspots are in our own region. Because, you know, 
We have things such as opiates and alcohol misuse, things along those lines to where more so with the alcohol misuse, it's going to be sporadic across the board. But that opiate issue is coming into different areas, centralizing rather than just spread out across everywhere. They're going to be in certain hotspots. Is that correct? Correct. And and we're seeing that, you know, there is an opioid epidemic across the nation and there are places within the nation to where it has just gotten ridiculously high. But then certain areas like in East Texas, it may not as has hit here as strongly as in other parts of Texas. Uh, we do know that, you know, there's a large concentration in the bigger cities. Uh, but, you know, clinic wise in our clinical area, we have not been seeing that many come in as of yet. But we do know that our proximity to the cities also lends us to be in an area in which there's the possibility uh, that there could be a problem with that. We do know that there are various substances like we talk about fentanyl right now. Fentanyl is really kind of taken over. And we do know that fentanyl is in the area uh, here in East Texas. We know that the drug traffickers use Highway 59 right through our region to take the drugs north and send the money south. But uh, so we want to monitor that. We use our data in that to try to see the patterns of where the growth is or where it's exploding. Uh, overdoses, we're beginning to see a lot of that, especially in the Beaumont area. Uh, we do know that there's a problem with the fentanyl coming through there that's most likely coming out of Houston and then heading east. And so those are some of the issues that we're trying to keep track of. The trouble is, is like for overdose data, you know, our latest numbers come from 2020. And so we don't have anything that's recent. And we're working to try to get that more in, on time, in time, in real time, if we could. But that's a big infrastructure that has to be built and developed in order to get that kind of data collected. So there are some holes in the statistics. And that, again, is where the qualitative data comes in and can fill in those gaps that we can't get from the statistics. I agree completely. The one thing with, you know, you bring up fentanyl, and I don't remember where I heard it, but they had mentioned that now that COVID is subsiding a little bit and it isn't the main health focus across the country anymore, the opioid epidemic has finally been able to break through kind of the, the curtain that it's been hiding behind with COVID and that it's now the, the forefront of issues across the nation at this point, uh, because coming across with things like rainbow fentanyl and colored pills in general, it's becoming a lot more difficult to really hone in on what's coming across the border, especially due with the fact that all it takes is micrograms to overdose on fentanyl, correct? Right. It What we've seen back when the opioid epidemic began, mainly through oxycotton and through oxycodone, then we saw the epidemic, we saw the problem. The government reacted, began to put some restrictions on the doctors, on the pharmacists to try to get a handle on that. And they pretty much have. But the problem is from that epidemic, now we have a large portion of the population that is now hooked on or dependent on opioids. And so if it's harder for them to get the oxycodone or whatever pain uh, relief they had been dependent on, now they're moving to other things. And so we're seeing a large transition over to heroin. And I think the drug cartels are taking advantage of that because they're now using the fentanyl to cut it into many things such as Xanax or any other type of uh, drugs that they're putting on the streets. They're finding it in the methamphetamine 
methamphetamine even. So it's because it's more potent, it's more cost efficient for the cartel. So it is very profitable for them to use that. So it, it's almost like a wave of a new epidemic coming up that's already here. And uh, so we're watching those numbers closely, trying to see how to best respond. I think law enforcement, I know in our area, in our region, they have been in front of this as best they can. And I think they're doing a great job at trying to address these issues that are out there. We do do a lot of collaboration in data with law enforcement throughout our area. They keep us on top of numbers. We help keep them on top of numbers. So we uh, have that uh, symbiont of agreement there that we work together on. And so it's been very beneficial. And we just hope that as we continue to work through this, that we can begin to see some uh, numbers go down and some actions taking place in that. Outside of local law enforcement, depending on where we're at, what other city officials or agencies or organizations do you typically work with to get your data? I work a lot with uh, the mental health. Uh, Burke for our area in the northern 12 counties, Spindletop in the southern 12 counties. Mental health, substance use, closely tied together. So, of course, we work closely with them. A lot of social services agencies that uh, work with people in need because uh, a lot of that, they're at high risk for substance use. Of course, uh, health care as well, especially in the area of HIV, AIDS. Uh, there again, they're at high risk for substance use. So we work closely with those agencies and health care in general. Uh, they kind of help us keep tap of what the physical health is on individuals within our communities. Uh, and we really want to work with anybody that works with the population so that we can help provide statistics for them about the demographics of our population. And they, in turn, provide for us what they are seeing that helps us get a more accurate picture of what we see. Kind of bouncing off of your new wave statement. I know that we're finding fentanyl to be in new substances like heroin, things along that, like you're saying. But they're also being found within medical prescriptions. The the whole one pill can kill campaign where, you know, some some guy might take a an Advil, but for whatever reason, it's been laced with fentanyl. And- the counterfeit pills. Yep. Uh, yeah, I was in conversation with the DEA not too long ago, and they gave me the estimate that eight out of 10 counterfeit pills are probably going to be laced with fentanyl. Most of the pills that they're seeing, and most of this comes off of the online orders, uh, those come as counterfeit pills from Mexico or China. And, uh, you know, they don't go through any federal regulations. And so you order it through the mail, get it through the mail. And we are talking about that campaign that one pill can kill because, uh, I can tell you these clandestine drug labs are not really seeking for accuracy in the weights and what they cut into these pills. It's not for their benefit for people to die from an overdose, but they're not investing in any type of regulation of their market. So that's beginning to be a real problem that we're seeing is the counterfeit pills that are coming across. Uh, So really, if any medication that needs to be taken, my advice is through a pharmacist that you know. That way you can be more assured to avoid some of that counterfeit. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's kind of like I said earlier, micrograms, it's all it takes. So one pill, uh, there's plenty of micrograms on a pill. So one pill is all it takes. And before everyone knows it, it's too late. That's right. And there's been lots of awareness over it in the past 
couple of years, but really starting to hone in on it now with what we have at the the HIDA initiative, the High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area initiative. Right. And don't forget about naloxone. This is an effective response to anybody who may enter into an overdose due to opioids. Uh, Just one quick application of naloxone will immediately reverse the effects of the opioids uh, because, you know, an overdose in opioids means that your your heart stops beating, your lungs stop breathing because that's the opioids are just shutting everything down. So with the naloxone, it just reverses that immediately. And then you can call 911 and get some higher level of care. But really, anybody that's using opioids or uh, is around people that are using opioids medication, uh, it's important to be aware of naloxone, maybe even have some if you can get a hold of it. Uh, There are prescriptions for it that you can get. And we're really pushing a campaign in our area to try to have more institutions have naloxone available for the populations in their area uh, because there has been such a drastic increase in the number of opioid overdoses that are taking place. And the good thing about naloxone, even if it's not an opioid overdose, it's not going to hurt. It only affects the opioids. So uh, if there's any chance that it is, is an opioid overdose, naloxone that's the key. And with that naloxone, you know, a lot of people may not know necessarily the application, but correct me if I'm wrong. It's something that can be used in less than six seconds. Yeah, you're wrong. No, you're right. (laughs) It is fast acting. The nasal spray is what's most common. And uh, it's just one, one shot in one nasal and within six to 15 seconds, it's gone throughout the body and got the reversal of the opioid problem. So yeah, it, it's a great tool to have. It's good to have. I've seen it in action before and I know that it works. So it, it's an important aspect of life now uh, because of the fentanyl problem. And let me pick your brain for a minute. So in Austin, uh, a group established and put up a naloxone vending machine. I've heard about that. Yes. Uh, what are your What are your takes on that? As far as having naloxone that out in the open and that publicly available. Well, I think the purpose of the naloxone and what they're trying to make available is that, especially in areas where there's a concentration of population that are at risk for opioid overdoses. Uh, it could be around a college campus, could be around a medical center, uh, anywhere that that population may be at risk for that. If it's available, it can save a life. And, you know, it's good to know that we're raising awareness of it, getting the uh, the medication, the knowing of the medication out there so people know there is something you can do. And I, I think it's important for us to just begin to recognize that, you know, at schools, they need to have this ready. You hope that you never have to use it, but in case you need it, it's good to know that it's there. You've shared a lot with us today, but my final question for you is what is one thing you want people to know about the data you collect and what you do? Well, the data is for you, for everybody. It's And it's not just numbers that are out there that just mean something to one person. When we put the data together, it's really a big picture. And I know when I write the RNA, I'm trying to tell a story, trying to convey a message of what our region is, has been, is at, and where we're trying to head to. And so we wanted to use these numbers to help support some of the goals that social services have, you know, our purpose is to help 
our community. And so we want to use these statistics to provide that help any way we can. And some of that help may be numbers needed to write a grant so that this agency can then have some money to provide these services. Great. It'll work great in that way. Uh, other than that, you know, you may get some of these, this data and use it to understand who you're working with and your population. And so it will be a support. And that's mainly what I want to do is be able to support these social services. And if there's not data in the RNA, I always tell them, you just contact me and I'll find some data on it somehow, some way. So we're here to help our, our region throughout. Well, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. If you or someone you know needs help with a substance use issue or concern, or if you just want more information, you can call the Alcohol and Drug Abuse Council of Deep East Texas 24-7 at 1-800-445-8562. Give, Get, Grow is a production by the Alcohol and Drug Abuse Council of Deep East Texas and the Region 5 Prevention Resource Center. We serve Angelina, Hardin, Houston, Jasper, Jefferson, Nacogdoches, Newton, Orange, Polk, Sabine, San Augustine, San Jacinto, Shelby, Trinity, and Tyler Counties where we offer prevention, intervention, and treatment programs and services. The Prevention Resource Center has a ton of information about the region available for free as a part of its mission. For more information, visit adacdet.org prc5. That's adacdet.org prc5. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date with our latest episodes. Follow ADAC on Facebook at adacdet and on Instagram at A-D-A-C underscore D-E-T. Thank you for joining us. Be safe and take care of yourself. We'll see you next time here on Give, Get, Grow.